Yes, my name is Ian. I'm a member of the congregation here. The Apostle Paul says that all scripture has been breathed out from God and is useful. I'm glad to be part of a church where we take seriously all scripture. And that means taking seriously the book of Zephaniah. I'm perhaps less enthusiastic about the task falling upon my shoulders, but we shall do our best this morning. I've heard it said that there are two types of difficult uh, texts in the Bible. There are those texts that are difficult because they are tricky to interpret. It's not always easy to get uh, behind or to arrive at their meaning and their significance. And that is to an extent true of Zephaniah. There are some issues in the text which uh, are not easy to, to interpret. But then there are those texts in the Bible that are difficult because we find them hard to swallow. We find it hard to accept what they seem to be saying, hard to accept what they are plainly saying. And I think that the book of Zephaniah surely falls into that category. We live in a society where speaking of God as judge and of doing this kind of thing doesn't go down well. And we are probably affected by the sensibilities of those around us. And perhaps we find the kind of things that have been said in this passage this morning very difficult to digest and to accept. I'm going to do my best to try and grapple with some of the issues that arise from this text and try and suggest some ways in which we can or should appropriately respond to what the prophet Zephaniah has been saying. First of all, we need to do some work to get to grips with some of the background and the context of the book of Zephaniah. First of all, this whole concept of the day of the Lord, which appears in quite a lot of the prophets. Uh, perhaps it certainly appears in Zephaniah uh, throughout the book. What is the day of the Lord? It certainly seems to be a time of catastrophic disaster, but one that can be associated with or attributed to a specifically divine judgment, and one that has been pointed to by a prophet. So the day of the Lord is a time of catastrophe, a time of disaster that has been warned of by a prophet, and that is attributed to God's divine intervention in judgment. But when we look closer within the same passage, whether it's Zephaniah or other prophets, we see this kind of intermingling between a day of the Lord which seems to be universal and final, affecting everyone, affecting the whole globe. We see that, for example, in verses 2 and 3. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Both man and beast, I will sweep away the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, the idols that call the wicked to stumble. It's universal in scope. 
But then when we move into verses 4 through to about 15, 16, 17, the prophet seems to be speaking about a local situation as it affected Judah uh, at the time uh, around about, so I should have noticed this, sometime in the 600s BC. It's a very specific prophecy against Jerusalem at that time and the reasons for it are explained and what is going to happen is shown to us in quite poetic and graphic detail. And then at the end of the chapter, uh, we once again have this verse, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. He will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. So we see this, in a sense, focus on two separate issues, the universal planetary day of the Lord, sometime in the future, and then the local context-specific day of the Lord, affecting Judah at the time of the prophet Zephaniah. Then when we move into the New Testament, things uh, develop. Should I should say it's, it's interesting that uh, uh, when it's universal, it's kind of speaking of an act of uh, a reversal of creation almost, an act of decreation, as someone said a few weeks ago. Uh, when God created the world, he, he, he put order into everything. He filled it with plants and animals and then mankind. And then when we come to this prophecy, this day of the Lord, which also reminds us of the flood, everything is being removed and swept away, uh, returning to chaos and emptiness and forsakenness. It's an act of decreation, a reversal of creation. Once again, when we turn to the New Testament, the day of the Lord again has something of a split personality, if I may use that language. We see language coming from the day of the Lord on the, yeah, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, we heard just two or three weeks ago that when Jesus was crucified, there was a supernatural darkness over the land for several hours. And that comes from Day of the Lord language. Zephaniah himself spoke of gloom and clouds of blackness. And so in a sense, we, when the people witnessing Jesus' crucifixion, they should have been reminded, well, what's going on here? Is this the Day of the Lord? And certainly, judgment was falling on Jesus. He, he was utterly forsaken of the Lord in that day. But then when Jesus speaks of the coming destruction of Jerusalem once again, uh, in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, the language is very evocative of the type of language that the prophets would use concerning the day of the Lord when he speaks of the forthcoming destruction of Jerusalem uh, under the Romans. But looking further ahead, um, Day of the Lord language is also uh, used when we refer to Jesus returning as judge for the final judgment at the end of time, when all will be raised, when all will face Jesus as judge, uh, and there will be this planetary uh, catastrophe and disaster that will be associated with that time. 
So that's kind of a biblical overview of what we are talking about when we're talking about the day of the Lord. It's quite complex. It can refer to something local and historic. It can refer to this end of time, uh, planetary uh, final judgment that still lays ahead of us. I want to say a few words now about Zephaniah and the King Josiah. Uh, just one fascinating fact for you, which I learnt, which is kind of irrelevant to the sermon. But Zephaniah may well have been a mixed-race prophet, which I find interesting, because he's the son of Cushi, and Cushi means the Ethiopian. It's also interesting to note that Zephaniah's uh, genealogy goes back four generations, and when you were of mixed race and wanted to establish your Jewish credentials, you had to establish a genealogy going back four generations uh, through the mother in this case. He also goes back to Hezekiah, so he's not far from the royal family. That's all very interesting. In verse 1, we learn that he prophesies during the reign of King Josias. And we can read about him in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. We don't have time to do that now. Josiah, Josiah inherited the throne when he was eight years old. He inherited a nation in a pitiful moral and spiritual state. As previous kings, especially Manasseh, had gone really very badly astray. And it's likely that uh, Zephaniah prophesied perhaps halfway through Josiah's reign. And he addresses Judah's spiritual and moral problems, especially in verses 4 and 6. He identifies idolatry uh, as being rife in Judah at that time. The worship of idols, especially Baal and Molech, and we have to realize that such worship did involve gross and degrading immorality, cruelty, even to the extent of involving child sacrifice. It involved temple prostitution, uh, the use of divination and sorcery. Uh, all of these things had been clearly prohibited by the law of Moses. And so the prophet comes and he denounces all of these things and explains that because they have sunk to such a dreadful state, that judgment would be coming upon uh, Jerusalem and the people of Judah. So it is a prophecy warning of an impending national catastrophe, the invasion of a foreign nation who would destroy Jerusalem and uh, cause incredible suffering to its inhabitants. Uh, we read that graphic, poetic description in the verses, um, especially on verse, through verses 10 to 13. Now, when I was reading this text, I got quite excited about verse, uh, where is it? Verse 7, where it speaks of the Lord preparing a sacrifice. The Lord preparing a sacrifice. Well, I thought that speaks of Jesus, surely. Um, all the commentators I read didn't take me in that direction, and so I don't want to be innovative in what I teach this morning. The commentators suggest 
simply that the city of Jerusalem was being prepared as a sacrifice and that the guests of which it is spoken or those who have been invited is the foreign nation that was being invited to come and slaughter the sacrifice in Jerusalem. Which again is, is very solemn. So then, when did this day of the Lord prophesied by Zephaniah occur? The answer is it didn't. Are we to conclude that Zephaniah was a false prophet? Well, I say it didn't. I should add it didn't immediately. Um, something similar happened years later, which it could have been referring to. But in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 22 and 23, we learn that Josiah came to realize the horrific spiritual and moral state that the people were living in. He repented personally, and he implemented reforms. Now, we don't know because there's no textual evidence to say that Josiah listened to Zephaniah and he said, yep, well, I'm going to do something about that. There's no biblical evidence to say that that happened, but it's surely likely and plausible that that kind of chain of events occurred. He surely was aware of what Zephaniah had said and written, and uh, it's quite plausible that that was a factor that prompted him to repent and to implement reforms in Judah. And that it was through that repentance and those reforms that the judgment, the day of the Lord, was postponed and actually arrived at a later date uh, when other kings had fallen astray once again. What Josiah did, he undertook a really radical campaign to eradicate idolatry throughout the whole of Judah. He went through the whole land and he dismantled and destroyed everything that was associated with idol worship. He gathered the people together and he read the law to them. He reinstated the Passover sacrifices and probably other sacrifices. And so we can see that Zephaniah's prophecy was a warning of what would happen if things continued as they were. But Josiah heeded the warning and judgment was postponed. It did come later, but it was postponed. We now need to try to deal with a couple of issues arising from the text. Hope I haven't broken that. Accountability and consequences. How are we to understand a God of judgment? How are we to understand the kind of events that he was predicting for Judah? And the kind of final judgment that the Bible so clearly speaks of, that we are warned of when Jesus returns, visibly as Lord, to judge all. I want to suggest that... Uh, the issue of being accountable to people in authority, of moral indignation and of sanction 
seems to be built into the moral fabric of the universe. It's present in some way in every culture and civilization. People are accountable to someone, and there are sanctions and there are consequences if recognized moral standards are not respected. Just to use an illustration that David mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the Australian cricket team, or rather two or three members, we're led to believe, used some yellow tape or perhaps some sandpaper to mess with a cricket ball. And this caused worldwide outrage and indignation. I think we need to get some perspective. <laughs> One side of the cricket ball was made rough using an illegal substance, which meant that it swung about in the air a bit more than usual, making it harder to hit, making it more likely that your team might win. That's called cheating. It was recognized as cheating by the world. It was recognized as cheating by the Australian Prime Minister. Everyone was scandalized and wanted something to happen. And so these gentlemen involved in the cheating have been removed from the Australian cricket team for a year, perhaps more. Accountability, moral indignation, sanction. It's built into the moral fabric of our universe and every culture and civilization. We, the Bible teaches clearly from start to finish, are accountable before a God who has created us and a God, if we are his people, who has redeemed us. We believe it's okay, don't we, when we feel a sense of moral outrage and indignation, when we see something going wrong, when we experience evil for ourselves, when someone says or does something that affects us. We see moral indignation about cricket. We've seen moral indignation about a whole host of other things over the last few months. The whole scandal of sexual harassment and abuse in Hollywood and in other workplaces has caused moral indignation, quite rightly so. When chemical weapons are allegedly used on British streets or in the suburbs of Syria, that causes moral indignation. We want something to be done about it. And we think that's right. How is it okay for us to feel outrage and indignation for it not to be okay for God to feel the same? And when the Bible speaks of God's wrath, that is all it's speaking of. That it is right sometimes to be outraged and indignant because of what has gone wrong in the world. And beyond outrage, it is right to want to do something about what has gone wrong in the world. Now our problem is, isn't it, that it's okay for us to be outraged when someone does something for me, to me. But when someone gets outraged or indignant because I've done something wrong, well, 
it's not quite the same story, is it? And then when we think of God being outraged and indignant because I've transgressed his holy moral standards, well, people seem to think that's, you know, it's not really acceptable, is it? But why? Romans 3, chapter 23, Paul writes, All have sinned and fall short. All, without distinction, with no exception, we've all fallen short of God's righteous standards. And for that reason, he is right to be indignant. And he is right to want to do something about it. Yes, most would agree that those who cheat in sport should be banned from competition. At least for some time, they should be removed from the team they represent. They should be removed from tournaments. Most would agree that politicians who commit serious acts of corruption or serious moral fault should be removed from public office. Most would agree that employees committing serious sexual harassment should be removed from the workplace. Most would agree that people pushing drugs on our streets or carrying knives and guns to use on other people should be removed from our streets. Why then does it surprise us when God wants to remove idol worshippers from the streets of Jerusalem? And why should it surprise us when God wants to remove everyone who does anything wrong from his creation? For if there is judgment and final judgment, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's a God of holy love expressing his holiness and expressing his love by putting an end to evil. Putting an end to evil everywhere. And I think the thing that disturbs us is that to remove evil, to remove all wrongdoing from creation... God needs to remove all wrongdoers. It's easy to say that paedophiles, rapists, drugs, barren, torturers are evil and that they should be removed. What we find hard is that compared to a holy and righteous God, we all fall short of the standards and we all deserve to be removed. To misquote the Conservative Party, we're all in this together. That's my approach to this whole area of judgment. You can discuss more about that in your home groups. Just want to move on quickly to the issue of the nations and Israel, comparing that to the world and the church. Because Israel, or Judah as it had become, following the separation of the two kingdoms, was God's chosen covenant community. But he chose them for a purpose. He chose them that they should be a witness to the surrounding nations. He chose them that they might be a light to the, in the darkness. He chose them that they might be a moral and spiritual example of God's design for humanity. But things went badly wrong. 
rather than light going out from Israel into the nations, the darkness of the nations came into Israel, affecting its spiritual, its moral, its political, its economic life, as we've seen uh, in the graphic descriptions in Zephaniah's prophecy. And as things had got so bad and for so long, God was ready to expose his cherished and chosen people to that dreadful judgment. It was a right, a righteous and just response and consequence of persistent, willful disobedience. I just want to ask ourselves, is there a warning for us here as a church? For we are God's new covenant people, a new community, a new humanity. We've been redeemed, we've been recreated. We too are also called to be witnesses, witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We too are called to be light in the darkness, spiritually and morally, we too are called to be holy, just as Israel was called to be holy, as the Lord our God is holy. Now I've been here about eight years and it's very clear that none of the very cruel and degrading, perverse stuff that occurred in pagan worship occurs in our public worship. We can ask ourselves, and you can talk about this in your home groups, to what extent or in what ways are we allowing the church, sorry, are we allowing the world to enter the church and to tarnish or to compromise our light and our testimony? I think this is a question that Zephaniah chapter 1 can ask of us. The nations had swamped Israel's witness and testimony. We need to be careful that the world does not enter into the church in such a way that we are no longer distinct and different, in such a way that our witness is compromised or extinguished. How should we respond to Zephaniah's prophecy this morning? I've got four S's, if you'll bear with me. Hopefully it won't be too long. First, verse 7, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Be silent. Maybe that involves two things. The silence of feeling the full weight of what it means to be accountable before a holy God and the God of righteous indignation. The silence of feeling of full weight of what final judgment implies and involves. We can almost imagine ourselves in a courtroom scene and we've got this person who's accused who just goes on and on and on protesting his innocence. And the judge said, that's enough. I've heard enough. Be silent now. It's time for me to reach my verdict. Be silent and... Admit where you really are. Reminds me a little bit of childhood. I've got one brother, 
and when some mischief or naughtiness had been committed, my parents would inquire as to who had done it. Often neither myself or my brother would admit to it. And this kind of led to the conclusion that there was a fifth member of the family, a mysterious and invisible Mr. Nobody, because nobody had ever done it. It was always Mr. Nobody's fault. But when we are silent before a holy God, there is, there can be no blame shifting, no longer any excuses. We need to be silent to say, yes, I am part of the problem. And you, I'm in your righteous hands. Be silent and feel the full weight of our accountability before God. That leads on to the second thing, self-examination. Zephaniah calls the people to gather themselves together. And it's interesting that King Josiah did gather the people to read the law to them in the temple precincts. That gathering together and the reading of the law was a time of self-examination, which was to lead to repentance. We, as we gather to worship together, and in our own personal reading of God's word, also need to have that sense of self-examination, of asking ourselves, what is God saying to me through Zephaniah, through the other things that we read? How am I falling short of the standards that God expects of me? And that in turn leads to repentance and a seeking. Zephaniah encourages the people to seek God in humility. (coughs) Humility implies an attitude of repentance. It implies an attitude of saying, God is right and I am wrong, of acknowledging where we have gone astray. Uh, Repentance is about turning from anything that is idolatrous and returning to God uh, with this attitude of seeking. And then finally, in verse 3, the last words that we read Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And at last, we find words of hope. Perhaps you will be sheltered in the day of the Lord's anger. It is possible to be sheltered, or as some translate and put it, translation put it, hidden when the day of the Lord arrives. And we see this theme of shelter or hiddenness running through the scriptures. For example, in Exodus, when the Lord announced through through, uh, Moses that the angel of death would be coming to take uh, the firstborn of everyone living in Egypt, Moses also announced that the people of Israel would be sheltered or hidden from this act of judgment. They would have to sacrifice a lamb. They would have to paint the door frame with the blood of the lamb. And then when the angel of the Lord arrived, he would see this blood 
and he would pass over the house. And in this way, all of Israel was protected, sheltered or hidden from this terrifying and tragic ordeal. It's interesting that we read in 2 Kings chapter 23 that King Josiah, as part of his reforms, reinstated the celebration of the Passover. That look back to this event. It's maybe a bit speculative to, the, to say it. We can say that Josiah not only repented of Judah's sin, he not only implemented serious reform, but he understood that to be hidden from or to be sheltered from God's impending judgment, uh, there needed to be sacrifice. And so he reinstated the sacrifices in the temple, including the Passover. And it's probably not coincidental. Now, because there was that return to a trust in sacrifice, that the impending judgment was postponed to a future date. It's interesting that in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks of the day when the Romans would destroy Jerusalem, his advice for people living in the city was to leave it and to go and hide or take shelter in caves in the mountains until the judgment had passed. Matthew chapter 24, 16, or Mark 13, 14, Luke 21, 21. But what about that final day of judgment? What can we say? Is it possible to find shelter? Is it possible to be hidden for that day? I'd like to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now this text is hugely rich from a theological perspective. But we find there within it, if we are united with Christ, if we are in Christ, if we have faith and trust in him, then we are hidden with him. And I think, I advocate and propose that one of the meanings of the word hidden here is that we are safe and secure in him and will go through that day of final judgment being sheltered from God's wrath and all that will happen to those who sadly are not in Christ. I did mention earlier that the words in Zephaniah 1, chapter 6, verse 6, God has prepared a sacrifice. In that specific context, probably can't be interpreted in a Christ-centered way. You might like to debate that. What we can say, though, is that the whole Bible line, we can interpret in that way. God has prepared a sacrifice that will shelter us, that will hide us from the final judgment. That sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And it's by faith in him alone 
that we will find shelter on the final day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed. And so when we are united with him by faith, we have that assurance that the final judgment will pass over us. To conclude, many complain that God is not doing particularly much about the presence of evil and suffering in our world. I would suggest that many of those same people would also dislike talk of God's judgment. The Bible seems to suggest, or rather the Bible does teach, that the final judgment is God's chosen means of removing evil from the whole of creation. And he will remove it completely and utterly, every last single trace of it. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? And once he has removed it, there will be a new start. There will be a new and glorious creation, untainted by sin, free from all of the suffering associated with sin. Isn't that kind of world good news? Isn't that a wonderful hope? Isn't that where you would like to be? But to get there, to get there, the created order needs to go through this process of purification. And the whole language of the day of the Lord, of final, of final judgment, is surrounded by language of purification. To survive that day, to go through that day, to come out the other side into this new created glory, one thing is needed, that we be hidden and sheltered in Christ by faith through his grace. Amen.